Welcome to Periodizing Productivity, a show aimed at bringing together thoughts, ideas, and creative innovations in sport, life, business, and everywhere in between. I'm Danny Hatcher, a content creator, researcher, and most importantly, lifelong learner interested in human performance, human development, and personal growth. Thank you for joining me, and let's dive into this week's episode. This week, I'm going a little bit different with the recap because I've always looked at all the highlightable points and taken the points and just shared them with you. But instead of just sharing them with you and getting the conversation started or the research down a certain rabbit hole, I want to actually expand on some of those thoughts with some of the ideas I have, some of the thoughts I have around a specific highlighted point that I have grabbed. So I have a list of lots of different points, as you will know if you've seen any of my videos on YouTube with my recaps. So I have lots of different points and what I'm going to do is go through those points and just share a little bit of insight from my perspective and then maybe hear your thoughts uh, on Twitter or something like that if you do have an opinion you want to share with me. So let's go. Good food and bad food, clean, dirty food. I saw a video about keto and keto diets being clean or dirty. Now in the video, keto, for those that are unaware, is basically high fat, low carb diets. And in the video, this this individual spoke about a clean and dirty keto diet. Now there was no specific thing that made it clean or dirty keto. It was just clean or dirty eating and basically saying that good foods and bad foods exist, which I think was fairly obvious. And the reason this is a highlight isn't because it's brand new to me, but because the idea of good food and bad food, clean, dirty, and then keto, it's combining two different ideas together. So they've combined a diet, a nutritional plan, a way of eating with this other concept of dirty and clean eating. Now, I don't know whether I agree with the ability to put both of those terms together, saying a dirty keto versus a clean keto. Yes, that brings lots of context into the specific video, the specific topic they are talking about. But as someone watching the video, it was very irritating looking at this person saying this dirty keto, clean keto, when actually they're talking about dirty versus clean. So it brings added context that I don't think is needed, which in my view, when sharing information, actually overcomplicates whatever it is that you're talking about. Because if you look at that video, if you look at the explanation, you need to have a full understanding of what keto is, what the keto diet, the keto nutritional plan is, before you can actually understand the the concept, the argument, the, the idea this person was talking about. Now, all of the references are going to be in the description of the podcast, no, no matter where you're listening to it, and it will be on the website because that's where I put it. But the video was great. It explained keto, it explained dirty keto, clean keto, going through dirty and clean foods, good and bad perceptive foods. But the idea of bringing those two things together, I think, overcomplicates the topic. And when sharing different ideas, I think it's something that a lot of us do. We try and combine different ideas, different topics together, which is what we want to try and do. It's linking our thinking, to use a term from Nick Milo, linking the thinking with different topics and ideas. But when we link topics and ideas, when sharing things, and we don't explain some of the jargon lingo that we use in our explanations, it can overcomplicate the explanation and actually mean misconceptions of the the argument can be quite common. I think that's my perspective, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. 
Sticking with the diet and nutritional plan, there was an article shared on Twitter by, I believe, let me just ch- double check my sources. Yes, Hannah Ritchie shared an article about three billion people cannot afford a healthy diet. And it was interesting. I, I have an image which uh, I will share a link to, like I say, in the description. But essentially, they were saying uh, and proving with loads of research that a lot of people in the first world countries can afford a healthy diet. They can afford calculated minerals and vitamins in your diet with dense foods, you can afford it. Even though starchy foods are cheaper, you can still afford a healthy diet, but we choose not to. And then in the other countries that can't afford the healthy diet, still have a more healthy diet than we do, which is interesting. When you look at money and you look at diet, the people with more money had less diet, less healthy diets uh, than the people with less money. Now, I know this is a fairly common correlation that we can see and something that isn't brand new, but the idea to me that money is actually decreasing health was was a relation that I hadn't really fully thought about. And when you think about it, when you think about healthy gym, so exercise, the, the ability to exercise, a lot of people don't. They have a gym. They have to spend more money to do the basic things. I want to go exercise, and instead of walking outside or cycling to, to work or whatever it is, they, they pay money to go to a gym. And this is this is going to link back to one of my other pet peeves. This is going to turn into a little bit of a rant podcast. There's a pet peeve of mine. When So working in the gym, I, I would work with individuals, some athletes, some general population, so gen pop people, and I would work with them in the gym. So they would pay to go into the gym, they'd then pay for the coach. I was doing an internship, so I wasn't getting paid at the time, but they would pay to go into the gym, pay to do this exercise. They would drive to the gym, so they'd have to pay for the fuel to get to the gym, which was most of the time it's like a 10-minute cycle. So they'd pay the drive to the gym. They pay to go into the gym. They then pay to have a McDonald's after the gym. And then they pay for the cigarettes that they're smoking in their spare time. And you're like, you're spending so much money to either be maintaining your your fitness because you're you're just eating loads and loads of rubbish uh, and not really fully going in the exercise as well, which is something that a lot of them did because they just didn't have the energy, because they didn't have the right food, didn't have the right nutrition. A lot of the time, they didn't have a good sleeping plan, and all of them, or the, a lot of them, smoked. And you're thinking to yourselves, you're spending all of this money to basically stay where you are instead of spending no money <laughs> and just cycle to the gym do a bit of exercise, don't eat drastic amounts of food, unhealthy, starchy, fatty foods as well, when you finish the gym and then just quit smoking. I know quitting smoking is a whole thing. I'm not going to talk about it. But if you're going to the gym, like you could just stop smoking and there's going to be similar benefits, if not potentially even more benefits stopping smoking than actually going to the gym. And it's going to save you money. And it's just, it's incredible to think that the amount of people in third world countries, having my experience in a third world country just opened up my eyes. But those people don't, they they walk miles to go to a school that (laughs) to learn different things it's just mad it's something i haven't got my head around and i don't think i will get my head around anytime soon but that's that's just a, a thought that i was going it's like money does not relate to health and that is so obvious and it's almost as if money decreases health which is where this highlighted point came from does the amount of money you have does the amount of wealth that you have actually decrease your chances of being a healthy person interesting question
And sticking with the theme of being a healthy person, there was a, a video about sleep hygiene. Now, sleep is a massive topic that I'm going to cover in one of my uh, research videos on YouTube coming up soon. You will probably hear this before you see the video, unless you've come back in time. But sleep hygiene. Have a schedule. Reduce the amount of light before you go to sleep. So blue light, dim, dim the screens, etc. No caffeine limited amounts of food, especially foods that are going to increase energy and all of the other chemicals that that can encompass, wow, spit my words out, uh, limit the naps uh, throughout the day, especially before bedtime, so you're actually tired and those those hormones, those, uh, what, what are the words? I can't even remember the words. The chemicals that are in your brain that time your, your ability to sleep, all of that is regulated and they are simple things that we can do, i.e. have a schedule, reduce the light before you sleep, don't drink caffeine before you sleep, don't eat loads of food before you sleep and don't have naps just before you sleep, which all makes sense. Like, I don't think they're hard concepts to grab, yet a lot of us struggle with it. And it's just funny how when you look at the research on YouTube, on articles and things and all of the comments and the conversations that people have, they talk about all of this stuff, but they don't actually do it. And this is something that uh, the highlighted point itself wasn't new to me, but the idea that we talk about fundamentals, we talk about the basics of what we need to do, do this, do A, B, C, D, is not new to us. There are lots and lots and lots of people talking about the same thing, sleep hygiene. When you look at any sleep-related video, they say all of those things, but they don't go any further in depth. They don't explain when to do that, how to do that, what they do about it, what mindset they put themselves in, what routines they have built around it. It's just, yes, I do this thing. Uh, and I think opening opening up those lids and actually sharing the experiences, the nuanced experiences of the individual can actually, I, I think, will help that conversation move forwards a little bit further. And when it comes to sleep, I'm not going to speak about it now because I, t excuse me, because I don't know enough about it yet. But there are so many nuanced things with sleep and so many things that the body does. REM sleep, deep sleep, light sleep, all the chemicals that are involved in maintaining sleep, chronotypes. There's so much research behind it. But you really have to go digging deep to find all of these things and putting it together. So sleep hygiene, the fundamentals are shared so many times. Being a beginner into learning how to sleep is always interesting. But once you've gone past that beginner stage, where do you find the rest of it? And again, I mean, it's going to come back to that barrier of academics and the general population explaining things in plain language. What are all these complicated terms and topics? I don't understand it. And I've been researching it for the last couple of weeks, bringing things together. But I'm going to, like I say, put it together into a video so I can share it with other people. Because sleep hygiene, the obvious things that we do, the fundamentals are fairly obvious and fairly consistent to do. But those small nuances those small individualized medicines, medicines, I don't think that's a word, individualized pieces of medicine for individuals isn't really shared. And that's what I think we need to keep the conversation moving forwards. And when thinking about sleep, laziness as a topic, laziness as a word, procrastination, precrastination, whatever term you want to use for it, it's something that a lot of us don't like doing. There's a, a social social stigma on the word laziness. You're being lazy, lazy being a bad thing. Now, there was a, an article from Anne Laurie in Nest Labs, and she also did a video on it about laziness, and basically explained why there are benefits of being lazy. Now, this is me looking at it from a strength and conditioning coach perspective. Laziness 
is not the same as rest when you first think about it. But when you look at what she's written, what she's spoken about, and a lot of the other research when they say being lazy is helpful, being bored is helpful, there are benefits to being bored, benefits to being lazy at some points. It's not necessarily the the negative connotation of being lazy, I'm not doing anything. It's giving yourself time to rest and recover. Let your body, let your mind rest and recover from what it is, what it is that you're doing. And if you're doing things that are overloading you, you need to rest so that you're not demotivated to do the work. So being lazy isn't, I don't think, isn't the same as rest because being lazy is when you have something to do, but you don't do it out of choice because you would much rather do something else. Now, if you are being lazy and if that is the case and you're unwilling to work, then I would question the values, the motives, the purpose of you actually doing the work because if you're unmotivated, you're not going to be in the flow state. And when you think about Stephen Kotler's work in the flow state, if you are being lazy and you are deliberately not working because you feel unmotivated to do that work, okay, what is the source of that demotivation? Why can't you be motivated to do it? Is it the time of the day? Is it the work that you're doing? Is it the passion? Is it the energy that you have? What is the reason for you being lazy? And then are you actually being lazy or is the work you're doing not directed in the passion or the focus or the motivated areas that you want to be pushing in? If that is the case, then laziness is actually a symptom of demotivation rather than something you just do, which I think is something people uh, in the world of sharing information have have done with the word. It's, I'm being lazy. It's, it's, it's a label. It's something you do rather than a symptom of something else that's actually larger, that's actually a problem that we could address and could solve. Going on a bit of a U-turn from laziness, going into senses and human senses with feelings, sight, and I, I watched a, a TED talk. It was it was a TED talk from a while ago. It's 2015 about sensory substitution and sensory addition. Essentially, being able to add senses. So, for example, blind people using sound to see, or deaf people using touch to hear through a vibration breath through a vibration vest. There we go. Um, fumbling over my words. I might just keep that in. But using different senses to substitute other senses. So the vibration vest was basically used as a substitution for hearing or feeling something else. So if someone was close, it would vibrate on your right. So you know you're getting close to something on the right. Using a camera on, on the head or on the shoulder or something like that. Using visual cameras to then feedback information to our body because that's what our body is. And this is where the, the light bulb moment happened when I was listening to this. Our body doesn't see. Our body looks at information, gets that information through the eyes, and then it's processed in the brain. We don't really see things. We just get information and we process that as sight. It's the same as hearing. We get information through our ears, sound information through our ears, and then our brain interprets that and says, okay, this is sound. This is what you are hearing. And this is what this guy was talking about. And there are loads of other things uh, that I've gone to explore and I sort of went down a bit of a rabbit hole, probably turned that into a research video as well at some point. But we we sense information and then we actually use our brain to interpret that information into something that is useful. And the idea of sensory addition, which is where this highlighted point just had to be spoken about here, sensory addition, 
we could have five senses. So we could have our normal five senses, but then have another sense. And he was speaking about it uh, using a vibration vest as multi-directional senses. Basically, feeling other things. You could feel someone sending you a text. So a vibration on your phone, you feel and you know, okay, this is the text. You can have different vibrations for different people. That is a very surface level uh, example. But when you have a full sense of feeling, when you look at people that are are blind and they're using touch to see, or all of these different things that people have substituted senses for, when you think about sensory addition, there isn't much research in this yet that I have found, so need to research more. But when you think about sensory addition, if you had a vest that you wore that was connected to the internet, you could have different feelings, different senses of what is going on on the internet. I don't. For an example, you could have your left left arm vibrate if someone has tweeted at you at certain different points, and you could then interpret those different senses at different parts of your arm. I'm touching my arm as I'm doing this, but you could have different senses on your arm for different words, different letters, kind of like Morse code. But it would take time to learn because it's a new language. But then you start learning what it feels like and associating feelings to words, feelings to responses on social media or feelings to updates in the news or just things like that. So when something happens in the news, you could feel that something has happened in the world. And that that idea, that concept of bringing connection instead of it being an online written world, being a feeling world was just an out there thought that I was like, you know what, I need to explore this further. And I'm diving into the world of sensory addition and sensory substitution. And it's something that I, like I say, I'm researching, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Where do you think the world could go with sensory substitution, especially when you start to think about AI? Bringing AI into that conversation, you could feel another robot. I mean, we're going way, way, way out there, but you could feel what another robot is feeling and you could be in two places at once, almost like the Matrix. It's, it's kind of out there, but the fact that this research and this practical application of this research is actually being studied and looked at is really intriguing. But success in that research and in that world is going to be quite difficult to see because we haven't really seen success like that before. And this actually really relates really well with a conversation Jim Quick had with Jamie Kern Lima, I believe that is how you say the name, but it was about defeating self-doubt and rejection. And essentially, they spoke about success, what success is, and through through the lens of self-doubt. But when you're trying to do something, and the person you're speaking to, the, speaking, the, the person you're talking with, or the ideas that you have in yourself, in your head, when you are having these conversations with yourself, if you haven't seen the success, or the person hasn't seen the success before, they don't know what it looks like, they can't really get on board with it, because they don't know what it looks like. They don't know how it feels, they don't know what it... What, what to expect. So seeing success, seeing that progress is very hard to visualize, thinking back to imagery, something I uh, had a little uh, had a little exploration with in another podcast, but that's a, a bit of a, a sidetrack there. When it comes to the success and seeing the success, if you can't see it, if you can't feel it, if you don't know what it's going to look like, you can't really measure whether you're getting closer to it or not. And that is something with self-doubt is very prevalent, which is what they were talking about. Self-doubt I don't know where success is for me. I haven't seen that success for me. I don't know what success looks like in this area, in this topic, in this specific context. So am I being successful or am I doing something that is just completely out there? And that is something that loads of people in the world of success talk about. Simon Sinek, uh, Seth Godin, 
Gary Vee obviously talks about different levels of success and being on the grind, actually putting the time and the effort in to see whether it is working or not. So success is very hard to see, very hard to measure. If you haven't seen it before, you don't know what it looks like. So finding a way to measure success in a way that you know what it looks like, i.e. setting goals, can be helpful in dealing with self-doubt and rejection of different ideas and different things. And this, I think, comes to coaching, effective coaching. If you have a coach, whether that is you are coaching yourself or you have an external coach to help you with building up goals, building up different, different ways to look at success, because there are loads of different meanings of success. But if you have a coach, whether that's an internal coach or an external coach or someone else, helping you with those goals, helping you with what success is, I think can help with self-doubt, can help with loads of other different ways to move forwards. And coaching is my area of research and a definition that I have I have basically used as my, my go-to definition of anything that I do, anything, um, with effective coaching. It's from Coton Gilbert and it goes like this. The consistent application of integrated professional, interpersonal and intrapersonal knowledge to improve athletes' competence, confidence, connection and character in specific coaching contexts. Now, that is a mouthful and there are so, so many things involved in this definition that, I mean, people have been exploring this for the last 20 something years and still have loads of stuff to stay. But breaking it down, linking it back to goals and success, the consistent application of integrated professional, i.e. the ologies, the professional knowledge, what we know in the field, interpersonal, i.e. the ability to communicate with different people, intrapersonal, our own reflective understanding and how that applies to success, knowledge. So all of those different areas of knowledge. Now, when you look at success, that can all be applied to what success is. Do I know what this looks like in the professional field? No. Okay. Who can I find? Who can I find that does know these things? Who can I speak to that may know that? Where are some examples that I can see this in practice? Interpersonal knowledge. Okay. What sort of people do I need to talk to? What sort of people do I need in a team? How do I talk to them? What sort of communication do I need with them? And then when it comes to intrapersonal knowledge, how do I move forwards with this? So reflection, how do I reflect? Am I moving forwards? Am I not moving forwards? What questions should I ask? Then improve athlete outcomes. Now, we're not all athletes. Most of us aren't athletes. We are just recreational individuals taking part in activity most of the time when it comes to sport. But competence, confidence, connection and character comes from psychological research in our ability to perform, perform in business, perform in life, perform in sport. They are all consistent. So competence. Are you competent in what it is that you're talking about? What it is that you're sharing? Is there an element of expertise that you have that allows you to be somewhat or potentially successful, however that's defined? Then confidence. Are you confident in what you're doing? If you're not, how do you build it? What areas do you need to challenge using those different areas of knowledge? What things do you need to challenge to be confident? Or what things do you need to do to make yourself feel confident? Or are you already confident and how do you keep it up? Connection. Connection between other people, connection between people in your community, in a culture, in your team, maybe when you are building out certain things, maybe you need a better connection with people in different departments. Then character. What sort of characteristics and behavioral traits do you have that will help you with success that may not help you with success? What do you need to do to improve or maintain in order to get the success that you potentially could be looking for and defeating the self-doubt that you have? What characteristics can you develop that will push away self-doubt 
and bring in confidence and competence. And then specific context, because everyone in sport is going to have a different context and everyone in life is going to have a different context because context always matters. And we all have lots of problems that we need to get through. It's it's part of life. Problems and issues are part of life. And Mark Manson, in his first book, spoke about that briefly, but I listened to a video overview of his book. So he spoke about his book, one of those things that I don't like reading. Most of you listening know that I'm not a fan of reading. And when I listen about books, about authors talking about the books, I actually get some more insights. And it was interesting listening to Mark Manson talk about Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. That's the book. And he was speaking about emotional problems, every problem being emotional. Problem going to the gym, You can't be bothered to go to the gym because you're feeling this way or not feeling that way. It's an emotional problem. Every decision, every choice that we make, there is an emotion or a feeling attached to it. Now, this links with the idea of brain and mind, the separation of the mind and the brain, something I will explore probably next week because that's something I consumed like earlier today. But the idea that each problem is an emotional problem and we need emotional intelligence, emotional control to be able to make decisions, to be able to use the uh, what's that part of your brain that is needed, the executive functions. There we go. You need the executive functions to be able to make those decisions that are objective, somewhat objective, not completely subjective and based on feelings. Because when you make decisions based on feelings, a lot of the time, It is actually wild, reaching statements rather than formulated opinions. And that's where I would prefer to make my decisions. Make my decisions of formulated opinions that come from rationales and justifications that have been researched somewhat and have synthesis and critique to back them up, rather than just an emotional feeling of a gut decision. But gut decisions can be useful sometimes. Another concept Mark brought up was emotional gravity leading to identity stagnation. Now, they are terms that can be very confusing. When I first heard him speak about that, I was like, what do you want about? And then he explained it. And when, and when he explained it, it made way more sense. And I actually went to the book and, well, I went to the book. I went to parts of people that are quoted the book and I read through the chapter or the two pages and I was like, this still doesn't make sense. Um, but when I listened to him explain it a second time, slightly slower, I was like, Actually, this makes sense. And then I heard someone else speak about the same thing, emotional gravity, from a review video. It had like 20 or something, 20, 30 something views. Uh, there were very, very few views, but they explained it in a very, very understandable way. I don't know whether that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Understandable way. It was very well explained. Um, and emotional gravity basically suggests that when you have Gravity, or like in, in my mind, I have a globe. Now, I haven't heard this explanation, so this may go a little bit sideways. You have the world, you have the globe, and you're standing on the globe. Emotional gravity basically means you have enough emotional forces to keep you onto the globe, to keep you in the world, to keep you standing, essentially, but not too much that you're completely like face to the floor, stuck to the ground, can't move anywhere. But then, That balance is always going to change. Whenever there is a decision to make, there is an emotional decision to make, the the emotional gravity will change. So, okay, am I really, really sucked into this? Am I emotionally drained? I.e., there are so many emotions in this thing that the emotional gravity is pulling me in and essentially 
identity stagnation is that it's pulling you in, it's forcing you to stay in the same place. You can't move because you don't have enough force to move you forwards, backwards, sideways, or jump because the emotional gravity, the gravity is pulling you so close in to where you are that you can't get anywhere. It's it's stagnating your ability to move, whereas... If things aren't emotionally triggered at all and there's no feeling, you can be floating around all over the place and not really have any grounding, not really know where you are, what you're doing. You're just in space floating around. And again, that's not necessarily identity stagnation. He didn't bring up a term for that. This is just my own analogy of how this works. And this is how my brain works in thinking through these things. It's not identity stagnation, but... It's certainly being lost in what it is that you're trying to do. It's trying to find a purpose. You don't have enough emotional gravity, emotional motivation to ground you in a purpose, to walk forwards, use forces to move yourself forwards because you've got nothing to stand on. You've got nowhere to stand because there's not enough emotional gravity bringing you down to force you forwards. You're just floating around trying to find a purpose and that is where emotional decisions emotional choices need to be there you need emotions whether that is good bad indifferent it doesn't matter you need emotions there and it's finding the balance finding enough emotion that you can stand still and use other forces to move you forwards backwards and sideways but not too much gravity that you can't move anywhere but not no gravity where you're just floating around all over the place And when it comes to making decisions, it can be very easy to say, more data, I want more information, give me more knowledge. And after all, until we reach a certain point, more data is the best way to make a better decision in the majority of cases. But then, fairly suddenly, more isn't better. It's simply a way to get confused or to stall because you suddenly get this overload, this backlog of information that critiques what you're saying, what you're thinking, the ideas that you're having. And over-consuming information, over-consumption is something that we all have to challenge. We, we all have to deal with. And the attention diet from Mark Manson has spoken about this quite a few times. The ability to conf- refine, not confine, refine what you're consuming and consuming things actively or passively, which I spoke about in the, in the note-taking video. Active consumption being things that you're actively consuming for a purpose. Normally, a learning purpose, learning for exploration of a topic, learning for an idea or learning how to do something specifically, and then passive consumption being for entertainment, rest, relaxation, etc. But more data, if you're grabbing more data for that learning, it means the learning process is going to take longer because there are more things to condense. And a book that I heard Mariana talk about, again, talking referencing my anti-library, for those that are unfamiliar with the term, anti-library is my library of books that I have not read, but I know about because other people have spoken about them, referenced them, or have listened to the author speak about the ideas in the book. But How to Read is a book Mariana spoke about, and there are different stages of how you read. You read the words, you then read what's actually being said, then you critically analyze what you're reading, and then you synthesize what you've read with other books and information. And the more information you have, the longer that synthesis of information is going to take, which is why meta-analysis in academics are so, so uh, condensed with information and long and difficult to do because Obviously, you've got the stats that go behind it, but there is so much information in there that it takes time to actually process it all and get a a somewhat cohesive conclusion from it all. So the more information you have, it actually decreases the effectiveness of 
what it is that you're trying to get from the information. So for me, when I get to a point where I'm quite happy that, okay, this is my decision, this is what I've made at this point in time, I'm going to stop right now. It's it's almost like the concept of minimal viable audience, I think. I think I think that is a Seth Godin term. Minimal minimal valuable audience, minimal viable audience. I can't remember what the term is. But essentially, but essentially there is a min a minimum. But essentially there is a minimum that you need to get to before it starts dipping at the end. So you go up, you go up, you go up, more is better, more is better. You hit a point, you sort of like a plateau point and then suddenly you just thump down, drop. Uh kind of like the catastrophe theory really in psychology and emotional control and arousal. As the arousal goes up and performance is slightly to increase, it gets to a point and then boof all the way down, completely, completely dropped. Essentially in football, penalty, taking a penalty. Arousal goes up, goes up, goes up. Okay, we're going to score, we're going to score. No, it's gone too high because I'm too nervous. Straight over the bar and you miss. Great. Uh, Reference to the European World Cup. European World Cup. Wow, call myself a football fan. Talking about the European Championships. There we go, in football. Uh, And England missing all of their penalties because we're bad at penalties. Anyway... Seth Godin was basically saying that limiting data in search for information, because we need to limit the amount of information we have so we can actually do something with the information that we do have rather than just constantly searching. And when it comes to constantly searching for information and knowledge, obviously, it's going to lead, hopefully, potentially, the aim to high performance. And that was something that was quite interesting to hear being spoken about, uh, performance of a particular task at an exceptional level. And what that actually brought up was this discussion around talent, what talent is, talent equation. What is the talent equation? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Massive discussion there, but that wasn't the actual point of this highlighted point. This highlighted point came from a video from the guy that does supporting champions, which is, I believe, Steve Ingham, for those that are unfamiliar. And he spoke about talent, hard work, and the ability to put that talent and hard work to create this exceptional level of performance, but do it under pressure. Again, linking back to that arousal, that catastrophe analogy that I've just used, when it comes to high performance, you could be amazing. You could be very, very talented. You could put lots and lots of hard work in, but if you can't perform under pressure, then you're not a high-performing individual at whatever it happens to be. And this is a concept that I really got intrigued by. Because when you think about a lot of people that are sharing information, they are talented because they have loads of different things, different attributes, different characteristics that allows them to do what it is that they're doing. Most of the time when it comes to YouTube, they are curious. They have a natural instinct to be curious and want to follow their curiosity. But then they also have the hard work they've put in to develop skills and different things in the environment, such as learning how to video edit, learning how to market, how to use slash manipulate the algorithm. So they've put that hard work in through different native talents, genetic almost-ish talents to be curious, to want to learn, to want to share and develop those things. But under pressure, can they deal with it? And this is something interesting when I think about that, because when they suddenly go in front of that many people, for example, you have a YouTube channel with a million subscribers with an average view video of, I don't know, 200,000. You you put that person in front of 200,000 people, there is a different sort of pressure. Will that person be able to perform in the same way? That is a different sort of pressure. And I don't know. I I legitimately don't know whether that person would be able to perform. And when I think about the videos that I make, my videos average around six to 700 views. And I can quite happily talk in front of six to 700 people. I've done it. But when that goes up, 
my performance in speaking in front of that many people, actually speaking in front of that many people, not just a camera or talking to a microphone like I'm doing now, that pressure, that environmental pressure will be different. So does that mean my performance in what it is that I am talking about, the performance, my high performance in theory, I guess, does that decrease? And this is something uh, when expanded on, instead of looking at creators, looking at academics. When you think about academics talking about theory, their level of performance is extremely high in theory when they're writing about it in academic journals. But when they put it in practice, is their level of performance just as high? It's a different environment, different context, but it's the same theory and it's applying theory to practice and there is a different sort of pressure. Is situational pressure, emotional pressure, and contextual pressure that's put on them. And because the pressure is different, will they be able to perform? And I don't think they will. And that is where the difference between theory and practice comes in with a lot of academic arguments and a lot of other arguments about the ability to put education, learning into practice because it's different pressure. So how do you practice under pressure? Do it. You've got to do it. You've got to get up and do it and be there and do the thing, which loads of us say, but do we actually do it? I don't think so. And that is something that I'm looking at in the future when it comes to sharing knowledge, sharing things that we're doing, sharing theories, sharing ideas. Are you actually doing it? Are you putting it into practice? Are you actually being a high performer in what it is that you're talking about? Or are you just talking about it? And if you are... Is that high performance? Is that really high performance? And that is a question I don't have the answer to, something that I've thought about. And better, hopefully, leads to high performance. But what does that look like in technology? Something that I heard Ash Fontana talk to David Perel about on the North Star podcast was about AI, artificial intelligence, and how most of the time in technology, scale is better, speed is better, but AI helps for accuracy. That's what they were talking about. So in technology scale, the more data, the more information, the bigger something is, the better it is. Arguably not necessarily true, but still. And then speed, the same thing. The faster you can do something, the faster you can do a process or get through something or sort data, the better it is. The majority of the time. And AI is supposedly there to help with accuracy of interpretation of information. Now, text is easier to process than audio. So the suggestion being that you put audio to text and then you let AI process. So it'll speed up that process. Also have more to process because when you have all of those words put into text, AI can go through all of those words, massive scale, massive speed, and then get an interpretation from it. So AI in theory should improve scale, speed, and accuracy. And something I heard them speak about, which was very interesting, which is why this point was brought up, highlighted point was brought up, was when you think about AI and what it does, currently in the world, what it can do is you can have a coffee machine and the coffee machine can tell something, okay, we are out of coffee. And the AI can consume that data, then transfer some information somewhere else, order more coffee, and then it will appear at the door. So you don't even need to know that your coffee machine is running low on coffee because the machine, the technology, the AI is detecting that using the scale, the speed, the interpretation of information to go, okay, you are going to run out of coffee before this time. We need more coffee. I will order that for you. And it does it. Now that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool if you ask me. And when you think about that, 
and expand that into those senses that I spoke about earlier. Okay, if we have multiple senses, we can feel different things. If AI can then also interact with the feeling of what it is that we're doing. So so any sort of information that we consume, we can feel whether the news is happening or whatever's going on, and the AI could then read our, our senses or we could say something, and there could be another sensory input for the AI to then make a decision on it. Maybe reduce the amount of inputs we have because of a response we have had. So AI reads our responses, maybe our stress responses are kicking in and we're getting sweaty and our eyes are dilating and we're getting stressed and worried. AI reads that and goes, okay, maybe this is too much. And then it reduces that input from that that added sensory uh, input. It's it's an interesting world in technology moving forwards. But yeah, that's, that's why it came up as a highlighted point, because when you think about that, moving forwards, you could have AI running your additional sense. But that is quite a long way away, I think, anyway. And when it comes to time, Mark Manson, again, bringing up time, Mark Manson this week just hit it home with a lot of the points that he was bringing up. But time, some things are just better with time. So the longer you've trusted someone, the more likely they are to be trustworthy. Arguably not necessarily true, but on, on the most part, I think it is true. The longer an idea excites you, the more likely you are to enjoy doing it. And I think this is very true for me anyway, from my personal experience, the more an idea has excited me. So the idea of exploring research and human performance, specifically in a sporting context, that was, that was something I was interested in when I was younger because I was playing sport. Look at me now. I've gone around and around the circles, but I'm still interested and I'm excited and motivated about exploring research, not necessarily just in sport, but sport is a context I'm very involved in, but high performance. How can we get better as individuals? So I certainly think as that was a trigger for me younger and I've had that over a long period of time, I'm definitely still highly motivated to do that. So I think that one's true. And then the longer you wait before making a major life decision, i.e. marriage career, the more likely that decision is to be good. Now, I think that one is kind of an obvious one for me because the longer you have to make a decision, the more information, the more justification, the more rationales, the more experiences you have to actually make a better justified choice. So I think that's an obvious one for me and basically just not rushing into choices. And when it comes to rushing into choices, procrastination is something that I wish was spoken about more. Procrastination, everyone knows about. Okay, I'm waiting to the last minute to do it and then I'm going to do it. Instant gratification. Yeah. But Precrastination is something that so many of us do. The shiny new toy syndrome is precrastination, but people don't name it as precrastination. Precrastination, for example, in a shopping context, inefficient shopping. So you could be buying loads and loads of things, but you buy the heavy object at the start because it's at the start and you're like, I need to get this. So you put it in the shopping trolley in your bag, whatever, and then you go all the way around the shop with that big thing because you're like, I need to get this thing. And you're like, that's, that's just so ineffective. Do it at the end. <laughs> I mean, I know that is planning, but you suddenly have this idea and you need to get this thing. So you go get that thing then and there rather than putting it on a list and putting it in an appropriate place. Another example is when you're doing lists or tasks, instead of planning out all the different things, you just do the task off the list. Or maybe there is something that comes to mind. I'm going to do this right now. And you do a load of short tasks. Well, that's great. But you had a big task you needed to do. And I've seen this. I've experienced this as well in my, in my own task management. But 
you can have five short tasks and two slots to do tasks. You have one slot that is going to be an hour or two hour slot of uninterrupted time. And then you have another one, two hour slot that could be interrupted by other people. Maybe they've just come home from work or come home from studying or whatever it is. And instead of putting the long blocked task in the first section where it's not distracted, you put the other task because they're small and you want to get them done now. Procrastination. Oh, that's a task. I'm, I must do it now. I've got to get that done now. So the first time that you can do the task, you do the task. Then that long task that was actually going to be better suited in that first time block gets put to the second time block. And then you get frustrated, you get irritated because there are distractions in there. And then potentially you don't even finish it off because you can't get into a float state because procrastination stopped you from planning appropriately. Now, these are just some of the thoughts that came up on my week in my week from lots of different sources, but it'd be great to hear your your interpretations, your opinions on some of these thoughts as well. Tweet at me on Twitter at Danny Hatcher, and it'd be great to hear your feedback on this in any sort of podcast review that you can do, whether that's podcast, Spodcast, that's great, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., because I'm always looking to contribute to a new conversation. <laughs>